Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. excited this morning that we have an opportunity to continue on in our sermon series together. But here is the reality. You need a word from the Lord. You do not need a word from me. And with that in mind, I think it's appropriate that we come to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Lord, would you mold me? Would you speak to me? And Lord, what I pray is that, Lord, this would not be a word that comes from me this morning. Instead, this would be a word that comes from you. Lord, that each person here would say, Lord, fall afresh on me. Lord, we are ready to receive what it is that you have for us this morning as we seek to be a people who are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And amen. You know, a a few months ago when Nate was going through basic training at the academy, they took his phone. And so we weren't able to communicate with him for about six weeks or so. And so we got in the habit of writing letters. Uh, One of those things that we probably are not used to doing as much anymore. So it was kind of fun trying to write him a letter at least a couple of times a week. And whenever I wrote a letter, I always included two bad dad jokes. And the reason I did it is uh, really twofold. One, because we were told that it's possible a cadre could say, hey, give me a joke. And so they always had to have a joke that was ready. And the other one was just simply because they knew that how hard it was going to be that maybe it would just be something that he could laugh at or groan at, depending. And so here's a a couple of those jokes, and I'll let you decide whether they're funny or whether they're groan-worthy, all right? So one of the bad dad jokes is this. Why was the moon in a bad mood? It was going through one of its phases. Or how about this one? I got my wife a mood ring for Christmas. When it was green, she was happy. But when she was in a bad mood, it left a red mark on my forehead. (laughs) All right. Now, why do I say that? Um, You know, I share jokes along those kind of lines because... You know, we get thinking around what does it mean for us to be in a good mood or a bad mood. One of the things that it's said is that the average American is in a bad mood 110 days out of the year. A third of the time. I don't know, that seems seems high to me. And maybe that's just because I'm probably an overly optimistic, positive person. Um, I can remember when we were at our first church in Pennsylvania, uh, I would go into the office every day and I would be like, hey, good morning, you know, I w- if you're a Seinfeld fan, it would be like, hello, la, 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 you know, I'd go in and the other pastor would be, he'd be like, 
Klein, you are too happy. <laughs> and he would say, you know, he's from New York. He might say, like, oh, you're a Midwesterner, aren't you? You know? <laughs> but, but here's the thing is hard for us to believe that people uh, around us can be in such a negative, bad mood. And one of the things is, as we learned last week, is that there are things that can have a tendency to be a joy stealer, the things that have a tendency to take our joy away from us, barriers to joy. We were talking about this last week when we were saying, look, if you put your joy or find your joy in other people or other things, you are always going to be let down because either people are going to let you down or if you put your, or find your happiness in other things, guess what? It's based on your happenings. And your happenings can come and go at just a whim. And so if you're finding your joy in other people or in things, and it's based in your circumstances, it's just going to come and go. Ultimately, what we were saying is that we need to find our joy in Jesus. Because when we find our joy in Jesus, there is nothing that can take that away from us. Now, the other reason I share those bad jokes with you is because here is another truth, is that emotions are contagious. If you're in a good mood, that's contagious. If you're in a bad mood, that can be contagious as well. Because here's the truth. You may not have found those jokes particularly funny, but you laugh because other people around you laugh, right? I mean, it, that's why when you go to a movie, it's always better when you go to the theater. Because you, you laugh because other people around you are laughing, right? You groan because other people around you are groaning. What we find is it's better because those emotions can be contagious. And what we find is that feelings are contagious. Joy is contagious. Sadness can be contagious, right? Anger can be contagious. Laughter can be contagious. It's not an emotion, but even yawning can be contagious, right? And so what you have to decide is who or what you are going to imitate. Who is it that you desire to imitate? And what about you are other people around you going to imitate? Here's what we're going to find today is that you, you imitate whatever you unite yourself to. Understand that? You're going to imitate whoever and whatever you unite yourself to. And ultimately what we're saying is when we unite ourselves to Jesus, that is the one whom we are supposed to imitate. And Philippians 2 has much to say about now, I want to share with you just a little bit more uh, a way to kind of introduce this idea, and that is this. How many of you remember going when you were a kid and you'd go to camp, or maybe you've gone to a meeting, and somebody might say to you on this side of the room, I've got spirit. Yes, I do. I've got spirit. How about you, right? And you know that you're supposed to call that back to the other person. I would be at Christian camp, and so they would say, I've got Jesus. Yes, I do. I've got Jesus. How about you? You know, and you're trying to call back and forth to one another to raise the spirit of the room. Now, you might be one of those types of people like, this is stupid, right? That guy's a dork up there. I'm not going to follow what they're doing. But you understand the point is to try to encourage people to be more joyful. Now, we may think it's stupid. I actually think Paul would appreciate something like that. 
Because what we're going to find in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul saying, look, I want you to imitate me as I am imitating Christ. Because ultimately, if our desire is to unite to Christ and to imitate him, I believe that you should follow what I am doing. And it's vitally important for us to be thinking about that, to be wise in who we are uniting ourselves to, in who we are trying to imitate. Uh, I grew up in the 80s, right? And you think about 80s fashion trends. Nicole used to call them the Sally Jesse Raphael glasses, right? Like those huge glasses. They're back in style now, by the way. You know, you think about things like that. Or how about like acid wash jeans or platform shoes or jelly shoes, right? Think about the way in which you rolled up your pants when I was in high school. You know, think about in the 80s, stirrup pants for ladies. Now, you think, oh, that was such a stupid fashion trend, or even leotards, but aren't spandex pants really just leggings without the stirrups on the bottom, right? I mean, you think about the way in which so many of these fashion trends come around. And you think about who are the people that we are imitating? Celebrities? Politicians? Athletes? Social media influencers? We, we probably say, no, come on, I don't want to be influenced by them. And yet, think about the way in which they, they shape the way, the things that we buy, the things that we think, and the things that we even do. The, the truth is, it is a lot easier for us to imitate the bad influences than it is to imitate the good influences. Why? Because the, the bad influences come in line with our sinful desires and with our sinful hearts. It is a lot harder to imitate the good things. In fact, what we find is good influences are difficult to follow because they require restraint. They require hard work. Mark Twain said it this way, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus Christ is our ultimate example. He is the one whom you and I are supposed to imitate. And when we look at Jesus, who lived a life of humility, who found joy even in suffering, and we're learning that is whom we're supposed to imitate, Yet I believe that as we follow the example of Jesus, you and I are going to be able to find joy. So what does it take for us to be a person who says, I've got joy. Yes, I do. I've got joy. How about you? I believe that we learn about that in Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to follow along this morning as we turn to Philippians chapter 2. Just want to give you a little reminder about where we are this morning. If you were not here, just a reminder that as Paul has written the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians to the Philippian church, he's doing it from house arrest. He's doing it from prison. He doesn't know whether Caesar is going to have him executed or whether Caesar is going to set him free. And so he's writing this letter that is about joy to the Philippian church to thank them for their financial gift to him, for their support for his ministry. And so let's keep that in mind. Let's also keep in mind that Paul has just finished up a section 
where he says that we are to live as Christ lived, that we are to follow his example. And what do we find is that he says, therefore. And, and pastors always love to say this, you know, whenever you see therefore, you always have to ask what it was there for. And Paul is saying, look, I want to be joyful even in the midst of suffering. If you want to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, as he said last week, what do you need to do? He says this. If you want to be a person who is experiencing joy externally, you first have to experience it internally. If you want to follow and be an example of Jesus, you have to do this internally. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and by the way, that word if can actually also be translated since. It's not a question like, hey, if you have this, then. He's like, hey, since you have these things, this is what you can experience. But notice what he says in verses 1 to 4. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Notice, if you're following along and taking notes, what Paul says. The key to joy is humility. The key to joy is humility. This is what Paul wants to develop in the Philippian church, is this example of Christ and one that is humble. Paul says that we should consider others as better than ourselves. Now, here's the reality this is completely countercultural. This way of thinking is, is so different than anything else that we see in our world. And not only in Paul's day, but in our day as well. We usually think, hey, the more I get, the happier I'm going to be. The more I step all over other people in order to get what I want the more joyful I am going to be. But Paul says that we should not do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, he's saying, look, you should be like-minded. And not just so that we can get along together as a church, he's saying you should be like-minded in the way in which you unite yourself to Jesus Christ. He says, if you want to be first, you actually need to be last. He says, you've got to put other people ahead of you. He says, this is humility. I got thinking about that this week, and I thought about the way in which, I, all of a sudden, you know how you get led down a rabbit trail, and, uh, but I thought, this is, so, this is such a powerful reminder of, if you watch TV at all, I, I mean, in the past 30 years, how everything is what you would consider reality-based TV. Um, you know, you go back to the early days, it was candid camera. That was probably what was an early form of reality TV. And then cops, right, became popular. And maybe something like Judge Judy became popular. But now, what do we have? 
we've got the many iterations of the real housewives, right? You, you think about things like the Kardashians, which I think is now off the air. You know, you think of the bachelor and the bachelorette. As I went down this rabbit hole, I found actually an article from Time Magazine written just in the past month. It said this. It said, reality series aren't exactly well-respected. Critics Social scientists and even fans never stop unearthing revelations about their crass manipulations and toxic tropes. Yet, despite all the antipathy directed at these programs, they've conquered the culture and claimed their prize, our attention. Sadly, I think what we find is that much of this programming actually puts human depravity front and center. In fact, oftentimes what we find is the more depraved and the more sinful we are, the better ratings things seem to get. It, it makes it seem normal that we stab people in the back, that we take friendships and things with other people and we tear them down. It makes it seem normal that we can sacrifice our integrity in order to get ahead. The article actually went on to say this, the power to influence our notions of normalcy versus difference convince us that certain behaviors are innate for different groups of people and present culturally constructed norms of gender, race, class, and sexuality as natural rather than a reaction to external circumstances. Amazing that a secular article would even say things like this. And so is it any wonder that when we follow this kind of thinking that it doesn't lead to actual joy or happiness? Why? It's because joy and happiness does not come from stepping all over other people. It actually comes from choosing to imitate Jesus Christ and to lift other people up. This is the example that you and I are to follow. True joy comes from serving others. But here's where you and I have to recognize this is not just about the world out there. Where in my own life do I not look out for the interests of others, but I look out for the interests of Aaron? Where I, I say or do or act in a way that is seeking to elevate myself rather than elevate someone else. My, my sense is that if each and every one of us looked at our own lives, we would recognize that we don't always do a good job of following the example of Jesus, of imitating Paul. And it's hard because we live in a culture where it seems, I mean, anti-American. It seems just to be able to put somebody else first. No, you have to put yourself first. You have to get ahead. What are the areas in our own lives where we would say, Lord, I, I know I need to do a better job of following after you? What does that look like, by the way? In, in small ways, to put somebody else ahead of yourself, maybe it's simply this. How about just trying to let somebody else go first? 
why don't you say, honey, here's the remote you choose what we're going to watch tonight. I mean, maybe it's simply saying you take the last piece of the pizza or the pie, or you take the biggest piece. There's small things about starting to say, I'm going to put somebody else first. But how about deeper things? What about if you and I kept our promises, even if it inconvenienced you? What would it look like to give more of your time and your talents and your treasure, to give those things away rather than seeing them as something that you have earned and so you're going to do what you want with it to get further ahead yourself? To be able to inconvenience yourself to say, I'm going to do without in order to give to someone else. What would it look like to humble yourself and to ask for forgiveness from someone you have hurt, even if you feel like they don't deserve it? I don't know about you, but whenever I put somebody else first, I have always been grateful that I did. I may not always like it in the moment, but I know that I'm doing the right thing. I feel more joy when I seek out and give to others. And by the way, I'm not saying that we do these good things just so that you can feel joy, right? Like that's the ultimate goal is just to feel that way. No, I feel the best about it because I know when I am doing it for Jesus, And when I am seeking to follow Christ's example, I know that it brings him joy. And so I experience joy because I know I am making the master happy. And then I find joy in serving others. But we understand this is so difficult for us to do. But ultimately what we find is that we are to imitate the joy of Jesus. This is what this is all about. It's about imitating the joy of Jesus. Now, what are some of the characteristics of this? What does this look like for us? Paul gives us an example of this. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what is the mindset that we're to have? What's the attitude? And by the way, this attitude is not just so that we can get along better as a congregation. Right? This kind of attitude that Paul is talking about here, what he's saying is we need to unite ourselves to the mindset of Christ Jesus. And when we unite ourselves to what Jesus Christ desires, then we're doing it out of a love for God and we're doing it out of a love for others. Now, what does this look like? Paul goes through in these next couple of verses a number of ways where we are imitating the joy of Jesus. Paul begins in verse 6 by telling us, don't be concerned with personal position. Don't be concerned with personal position. He said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I I memorized this as a kid, something to be grasped. Even though Jesus was God, he did not use that position as a way to lord it over other people. He did not use it to benefit his own stature. 
Jesus never looked at anything in the world and said, this is mine for the taking. He never used his advantage of being God to his own advantage. The application is simple. Whatever degrees you feel like you have earned, whatever plaques you may feel like you have hanging on the wall, we do not use those things to lord it over other people. Matthew said this in Mark 10, 42 to 45, you know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, on occasion, people will ask me, what should we call you? And I'll joke and say the most holy reverend, Aaron Klein, right? Uh, I, we used to, when we lived in Pennsylvania, of course, Pennsylvania, PA, Pastor Aaron, it didn't take long for the youth group first mission trip for the kids to start saying, hey, PA. And uh, it stuck. And uh, 10 years later, I had adults who were calling me PA. And of course, I could have been upset by that and say like, uh, excuse me, no, wait a second, I want to be called this. In fact, I've known people who want to be called if they, the Reverend Dr. So-and-so. And you know what? If that's what they want to be called, that's, that's their right to be called that. If you're in the military, when you earn a position, you earn the right to be called that. And yet, I, I think of at that first church, the pastor emeritus, Dr. Herbert Van Wyck. Whenever you would call him Dr. Van Wyck, he would say, please, don't call me that. Call me Herb. And, uh, and that was something that I just saw in him. He was such a stately man. And yet, he didn't want to lord that position over anyone else. I, I think about the way in which um, nowadays, listen, I'm just going to tell you this. You may tell my kids to call you by your first name, it's not going to happen. <laughs> they may call you like Mr. So-and-so first name or, you know, or Miss Tangy, right? They're, they're, but what we do is we're saying, look, th this is how we are to address one another. And I think it's just important for us to think no matter what plaques we have hanging on the wall, no matter what importance we may feel like we have, how are we imitating Christ? And ultimately, who are you when you take the uniform off? Who am I when I step down out of the pulpit? Who are you when you leave the classroom from teaching? How do we treat other people? Ultimately, we have to let Jesus be our guide. Though Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant. And that's the example that we are to follow. And here's the thing, is Jesus, as we follow his example, found joy. And we know that we too, as we follow his example, can experience joy. And so we humble ourselves, we think less of ourselves, we put our position aside, and we elevate Christ. And as we elevate Christ in our own lives, then we begin to elevate other people brings joy to the Father when we humble ourselves and follow the example 
of Jesus. And as a result, you and I get to experience that same joy. Second, notice this, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus by making yourself a servant. By making yourself a servant. Notice what verse 7 says, rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, what does that mean? It means that although Jesus was God, he became flesh. He became God incarnate in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, who was able to take on human flesh, who lived, who died, and who rose again. We follow that example. You know what the, the example looks like? Jesus, even though he was God, as he gathers his disciples around him in that Last Supper, what does he do? He takes off his robe and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, something that was reserved for the lowest of the low servants of those days. And when Jesus puts his clothes back on, what does he say to his disciples? He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asks them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Other people, how can you and I find joy in the midst of being a servant? I want to tell you this. If you find your joy in having other people serve you, guess what happens? Whenever they don't serve you, you're not going to be very happy. But if you say, you know what, it's not about whether other people are serving me, rather it's the way in which I can give of myself to others, the way in which I can serve them, then it's no longer dependent on how other people treat you. Instead, your joy is found in knowing that you are being like Jesus. And this is whom we are to imitate. Notice a third thing. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus by imitating inconvenience. By being willing to be inconvenienced, verse 8 says, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, I, I read that this week, and I kept reading that over and over again, and it led me to this question is, how far is my obedience willing to go? Am I, am I willing to obey the word of God and be inconvenienced if it, if it doesn't fit what I want to do? Am I willing to be inconvenienced by putting others first? Am I, am I willing to be inconvenienced even to the point of death? Our humility is shown in these kinds of situations. And so is our joy. Jesus said this in John 15, 13. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down one's life for one's friends. That is the ultimate example of humility. 
And then I come to Hebrews 12 too, and it just completely blows my mind because it says this. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith. A lot of us know that part of the verse. And then it says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, just let that sink in for just a moment. The, the idea that it was for joy that Jesus Christ was willing to endure the cross. I mean, none, none of us would say joy in the cross? But it was in knowing the result of what was going to happen, the joy that was going to come, the promise of eternity. And for us to think that is the kind of joy that we are supposed to have, to be willing to endure suffering. And if, to say, I would even face suffering with joy. We try to avoid suffering at all costs. And yet, to be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of Christ. Because what's the result? The result is this. It's the joy abounding in glory. It's the joy abounding in glory. Notice what it says in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was willing to endure the cross, to endure its shame, knowing that there was the joy to come sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And it reminds us that even as Jesus was willing to humble himself to death, even at death on a cross, that when you and I choose to humble ourselves before God and to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we too have the promise that after death there is joy to come. We have the promise of everlasting life. This is the joy of humbling ourselves, whether it is before others and ultimately before God, so that we can experience the promise of glory. Now we say to ourselves, Pastor Aaron, this just seems so difficult how, to find joy in suffering and to be finding joy in being inconvenienced. How, how do I become a person who is imitating the joy of Jesus? Notice a couple of things. The first is this. You have to be willing to work at it and allow God to change your will. Work at it and allow God to change your will. Notice what it says in verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in according, in order to fulfill his good purpose. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we earn our salvation in any way, that we work at it, 
But for us to understand, there's really two parts to our salvation. Theologians love to call this the justification and the sanctification that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Justification is the act where you are declared right with God. It is a one-time declaration that you, because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, putting our faith in him, you have been declared right with God. You have been justified. But the sanctification part is the part where every single day you and I are desiring to live more and more like Jesus Christ. That we are trying to be more like him every day, more today than we were the day before. And as long as you and I walk this earth, this is a lifelong process of saying, I want to submit to his will and not my own. Paul's not saying that we work to earn our salvation. He's saying continue to work this out. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Live out in the physical realm what you have already received in the spiritual realm. It's seeking to be more and more like Jesus. You've got to work this out. I want you to get stronger each and every day. And that's what we have to work out. You know, I, I think about this on uh, Tuesdays. I have an opportunity to partner with the YMCA, and I volunteer with the Live Strong program. And this program is for those who are either battling cancer or who have battled cancer. And I get to go in and kind of walk with them, talk with them, work out with them. And four times uh, uh, in, the, in a class, a session, uh, I get to share with them a gospel message. Pretty amazing. Um, but I get to talk about thanksgiving and gratitude and even mortality. And so in each of those opportunities, I get, to, I get to share with them Jesus, and we talk about body, mind, and spirit. And so while we're there, I get to, I get to focus on the spirit side of things. But then while we're there, we also get to walk with them. And so while they're doing walking, laps on the track, I get to walk with them. While they're working out, I might stand there and say, come on, give me one more rep. You can do it. Push a little bit harder. You can finish this. You know, give me one more. And the point is this. They may already have been healed, but they are still working it out. Right? They're trying to get stronger. And it's amazing, even in the past four weeks, to see the way in which people who were weak have added weight every single week, and they're getting stronger. And that's what you and I are doing. When, when we're becoming more like Jesus Christ, this sanctification process, we're working it out. We're trying to get stronger. We're trying to be more like Jesus each and every day. And this is the call for us, to be more like Jesus. Jesus. And to be deliberate in our choices, to be able to say, Lord, how can I make a decision? How can I act in a way today that honors you? And know that as I am living this out, there is the joy that is awaiting me. And then I think it's also this. Being an imitator also means that we should seek to bring light to dark places. Notice what verses 14 to 16 say, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in your warped and crooked generation. Do I even need to say anything about that? We recognize the, the generation that we live in. This is Paul writing this in his day. And in our day and age, we could still say we live in a warped and crooked generation. So we got to follow Christ's example by living a pure and a holy life. He says, then, 
you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying, when you and I humble ourselves and we are following the example of Jesus Christ, you and I are shining like stars. We are, as we heard today, a city on a hill. We are a church that is desiring to bring joy to the city. But we know, as we so often say, a church cannot be what its people are not. And so we want to be a church filled with people who are desiring to serve, who are desiring to humble themselves and say, I will put others first. And we start with ourselves, saying, Lord, how do you desire me to be that type of person that is following the example of Jesus, who is being a servant, who is humbling myself after Christ? Well, if you, I don't know what that's going to look like for you this week. I want to maybe just give you a small challenge to be able to say, what are some small ways some steps where you can begin to humble yourself and to put others first. Where might you be willing to put your own rights aside so that you can lift up someone else? What are ways this week where you can stand in the light of Jesus and you can reflect him shining like a star in our community, in where you work, in where you work out, in your extracurricular activities. How are you shining like Jesus? Knowing that even in humbling yourself, you can experience joy. Because there is joy in reflecting the light and the love of Jesus.